We want to spend a moment now reflecting on the reality of Christ as the gift that we have all been waiting for. I'm going to be teaching and reading from a passage in Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. At our church over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the Christmas stories that unfolds in the book of Luke. And we're going to keep studying Luke in the new year. If you want to come back and join us uh, throughout the year, we'll be studying the Gospel of Luke and looking at the life of Jesus in detail. Um, But this is the one Christmas story we haven't gotten to yet this season. And so uh, for this special day, I want to stop and look at uh, the birth of Jesus through the eyes of Matthew, through the writing of Matthew. One thing that's interesting to note as you look at the different gospel accounts is the different styles of writing that the gospel witnesses have. Uh, They write from different perspectives. They have different styles, four views of, of the same truth. Of Jesus. Luke tends to unfold the story and let you see the characters interact with each other and let you see the fulfillments happening without saying, and this is the fulfillment. Matthew, on the other hand, says it repeatedly. It's a theme that you see again and again in the book of Matthew. He, he says, and this was this fulfillment, and here is another fulfillment, and here's another fulfillment, and this prophecy was fulfilled, and this literary motif was fulfilled, and this Old Testament reflection was fulfilled, and this promise was fulfilled, and we just see fulfillment after fulfillment in the Gospel of Matthew. And in the uh, Christmas narrative, the birth narrative of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, we have a, a similar uh, kind of occurrence. We have this idea where he explicitly names what's happening when Jesus is born, what kind of hero we have coming for us. And so as we think about Christmas time, I've been taking time to just kind of reflect on the various cultural ways that people celebrate Christmas. Uh, we're here in a melting pot. People come from all different directions, right? Colleen, Texas, People come from all over the world. People don't stay here very long. And one of the things that I really enjoy about that is I get to know different people's traditions. Some people practice Christmas very vigorously. They're all about it. Other people don't really practice Christmas at all. Uh, Some people have lots of tradition. Other people are not into tradition. Uh, Some people like to practice Jewish feasts and different kinds of holidays. Other people uh, have different ways of celebrating who God is and what he's done in their life. And as we see all these different traditions, it got me thinking about different ways people do this. I started looking up the most popular Christmas songs uh, that we have in our country. There are different lists you can find online, you know, USA Today or whatever, different magazines. I started reading through some of the lyrics of the most popular Christmas songs in our country. And these are kind of the secular Christmas songs. These are the ones you'll hear on the radio. Uh, And as I was flipping through the different songs, most of them, uh, the content of the song is it's a little shallow. You know, there's not a whole lot of depth in these songs. It's mostly about just good memories. It's mostly about things like silver bells, right? Or snow or music or rocking around the Christmas tree. You know, it's just about kind of fun parties, delights, feasts. And at first, I have to admit, confession time, I was a little judgy about that. As I was reading the lyrics of all these songs, I was like, man, they miss Jesus, you know? Like, come on, it's, it's not just silver bells and snow. It's, it's more than that, right? But then I thought, there is something really sweet going on here, though. There's something really good when we remember good times. I, I think if we kind of backwards engineered that, we'd see that the reason people are having parties again and again this time of year for the last 2,000 years is because Jesus was born. And so, Yes, it's sad to think sometimes people might have the party without knowing about Jesus. For sure, that's sad, but we can still enjoy the party. And Christians have a lot to learn about partying. We often don't party very well. Jesus got in trouble with the religious people of his day because he partied too much. 
He had a good time. He loved sinners and he welcomed them. So I think we have a lot to learn as we look at all the different ways that people feast and celebrate. There's a lot we can learn from different traditions. And I thought, what, what are your favorite traditions? I'm, I'm not going to actually pull you, but I just want you to stop and think about it. Like, what are, what are some of my favorite memories of Christmas as, as a child, or maybe of the last few years? What, what might those be? Um, since we don't have time to hear all yours, I'm going to tell you mine, okay? My favorite memory from Christmas as a child. This might sound kind of strange, but my favorite memories from age like four, five, six, seven, eight. I can remember Christmas time was when I saw the men of my family. Didn't really see them a lot in ordinary life, and so I'd see my grandpa, who I knew loved me dearly, and my two big uncles, and my dad, who I didn't get to see a lot either. And all four of these men were enormous men, and all four of these men had really big, scary, loud voices. Um, Sometimes they would make me and the other cousins cry when they would laugh or (laughs) be too loud, right? They were scary men, and yet they were loving. They would embrace us. When we would see them at the holiday times, they would just give us a huge bear hug. They would just grab you tight. Anybody in your, your, y'all do the bear hug thing in your family? Where like the adult grabs the child and squeezes them so hard that like the child is a little bit afraid they might break, right? They might crack. Um, It's this kind of joy mingled with fear. And as I was reflecting on the holidays, I was like, that's, I think that's my favorite memory, right? That's my favorite memory is the bigness and the closeness of these men that God put in my life. And I thought, that, that gives us a picture of what God is like. And it gives us a picture just like the picture that we see in the birth narrative in Matthew chapter 1. In this birth narrative in Matthew chapter 1, we see the bigness and the closeness of God. We see a God that through the birth of Jesus is giving us a bear hug. He's terrifying in his bigness, and that he's tender, and he's loving in his closeness to us. So I want to read the account from Matthew 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. If you don't have a Bible and you want to grab the black Bible under the chair, you can flip open towards the end of the Bibles where the Gospels are. It's page 807. Page 807, it's Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, I'll explain the two names here in a minute, Jesus and Emmanuel, but I'll give you a hint. It has something to do with the bigness and the closeness of God, okay? But I want to pray first for our time of studying this passage. Let me pray that Jesus would help us. Oh God, help us to understand what you're doing in history, in the world, in this crazy reality that we live in. Would you show us 
that you are real. I pray for those that are here right now, those that are hearing this story that we've all heard so many times before. Will you help us to hear it fresh for the first time? I pray that for myself. I pray that for all of us, Lord, that you would help us to, to wonder anew at the story, at this history that has changed reality. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme is the bigness and the closeness of God. God is big and he's close. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so as we look at the birth of Jesus and we look at the names of Jesus, we see a revelation of what God the Father is like. We begin to understand who he really is. We see the bigness and the closeness of God in his two names, the name Jesus and the name Emmanuel. First, I want to look at the name Jesus and just kind of unfold the story in order here. As we look at the text, we see um, what is very understandable through the eyes of Joseph. He suddenly finds that the woman he's betrothed to, Mary, uh, is pregnant. And so he's a common sense man. He's a righteous man, we're told here in the text. It says in verse 19, her husband, Joseph, being a just man, righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he was righteous, so he was going to divorce her, because as far as he could tell, she had cheated on him, right? Basic biology, she's pregnant, not his, she cheated on him. And then he's also, we're told here, not willing to put her to shame, so he was going to do this quietly. So you can see, mingled together in Joseph, a similarity, right? He's just, He's compassionate. He doesn't want to see Mary put to public shame. So he's just, he's going to do the right thing. He's got to separate from this woman that he can't trust any longer. But he's also compassionate. He's kind. He doesn't want to shame her unnecessarily, so he's going to do it quietly. We see even in Joseph, this godly character revealed. And yet, I want us to take note that Joseph doesn't have all the information. Joseph is a really strong person. Joseph is just. Joseph has got his stuff together, and it's not enough. That's really important for us to see. It's not enough. The the angel has to break in and give him a special message. He needs special revelation. He doesn't just need the revelation of nature. This is how the world works. He needs a special revelation of a God who breaks in to his reality and disrupts it. I want to ask you the question, are you enough? Do you have everything you need? Are you self-sufficient? I've spent, spent a lot of time with the toddlers lately. The grandkids are in town. Love it. But all kinds of great lessons you get when you hang around with two and three-year-olds, right? I want to do it. And often they can't do it. And you know, we don't really grow out of that. that that's, that's often my prayer life with God. You know, it's me pouting, saying, I want to do it. And him saying, no, you need to ask me. And so we see here in the text that Joseph needs outside interference. And what happens as he considered these things, verse 20 Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He gets a special message from God. We call this special revelation. So theologians like to distinguish from general revelation. We see a sky. We see a world. It's awesome. We know God is there. That's just general, right? We can see that everywhere. And then special revelation is God's word. Through the message of an angel, through a prophet, we've got it bound together here. So if you're thinking, yeah, Dave, that's easy for you to say, but angels don't appear to me in my dreams. You don't need angels to appear to you in your dreams. We've got the Bible. He's talking to you. Are you listening? Are you picking it up? Are you saying, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't need any special interference. I can save myself. I would warn you that that doesn't work out very often for people. 
the angel warns him and says, no, don't do this. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. You're going to call him Jesus, which was one of the most boring Jewish names you could give a boy in that day and time. The equivalent of Mike or Bob, or I guess with the younger generation, that'd be like, Chris, yeah, there's two right here, yeah. And so there's really common names, right? Jesus is just the Greek pronunciation of Yeshua, Yehoshua, Joshua. It's just a very normal Jewish name. But its meaning is really, really important. Its meaning is Yahweh saves. Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. God saves. People don't save themselves. God saves. We can't save ourselves by the strength of our own flesh. And we all have different strengths, Some of you are really brilliant. Some of you are really athletic. Some of you are really wise. Some of you are really talented in ways that I'll never be talented in. And I rely on you and I'll ask you for advice and I'll ask you for help. But that talent that we're born with and that talent that we develop through grit and hard work, it's a good thing, but it's still not enough. We still have this problem called sin. We're going to call him Jesus. Yahweh saves. Why? Because he'll save his people from their sins. We're all sinners. Paul lays out the argument really complexly in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. He says there's crazy, obvious, rebellious sin where people go nuts and they do whatever they want and society collapses, right? We're getting to see more and more of that in our own society. It's extreme. It's obvious. Everybody knows that's sin. And then Paul shifts and says, and there's this other category of sin. It's religious people, the good people. We try to do the right things. We try to live by God's law. We are like Joseph, just and righteous people. We try to be compassionate. We try to be obedient. We try to be upstanding citizens. And Paul turns the guns on the religious and the non-religious and says, we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You don't escape sin by just showing up at church or by being a good citizen or by being a good neighbor, right? Should you do those things? Yes, please do those things. But it's not enough. Sin is missing the mark of God's perfection. If you're not sure if you're a sinner, read the Gospels. Look at the life of Jesus. Compare yourself to Jesus. Don't compare yourself to your neighbor. You're probably better than your neighbor, right? Compare yourself to Jesus if you want to understand sin. Another helpful way to do this, to think about sin in our own life, is to think about all the times you've said, I'd never do that, and you did it. Or all the times you've judged people for doing something stupid, And get alone and be honest and recognize, yeah, you've done the same stupid things. That's sin. None of us measure up even to our own standards, much less the standards of God. And so Jesus comes to save people from their sins. And this shows us the bigness of God. Why? Because no man can do that. Only God can save sinners. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can solve this problem that can only be solved by someone who is perfect So we've got a human baby born who lives the perfect life as a human that all of us should have lived. This is a perspective of Luke particularly, but also here in Matthew, that Jesus is the one who lives as the new Adam, the perfect Adam, the one that doesn't make the mistake that we've all made, but who loves God the Father, who walks in obedience with him, who does all the things we should have done. And then he dies on the cross taking 
our place as a sacrifice. So if you reach out to him in faith, he will forgive you because God alone can save you from your sins. Only Yahweh brings salvation. And that comes through Jesus. Jesus is the reality that shows us this truth. God saves. Yahweh saves. The bigness of God, he solves our biggest problem. And our biggest problem is not running out of money. Our biggest problem is not having too many people over for Christmas. Our biggest problem is not aloneness, having too few people over for Christmas. Our biggest problem is not our cancer. Our biggest problem is not our bank account or the stock market. Our biggest problem is not the relational dynamics at home, even though those can be frustrating. But our biggest problem is is sin, separation from God, and Jesus solves that problem. The other thing we see is the closeness of God. And we see this as the story unfolds in the other name of Jesus. Verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, to, just to clarify, because this confused me a lot when I was younger, they didn't call him Jesus one day and Emmanuel the next and back and forth. Emmanuel is, is the kind of thing they said about him. This is the character of who he was. What kind of person was he? He was God with us. He revealed who God is. So Emmanuel is more like a role or title. Jesus is the name they called him every day. So his everyday name is Jesus, has important meaning, and then his character. His role, his title, his function was Emmanuel, God with us. It goes on and says, Then Joseph woke and did as the angel said, took his wife, knew her not until they gave birth to the son and called his name Jesus. That was the actual name they used. But everybody looked at the life of Jesus and said, this is Emmanuel, this is God with us. This is the closeness of God. The most common promise in the Old Testament, God says again and again, hey, someday I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to be close to you. Everything's going to be okay. And so we see these kind of promises in the peace readings that we looked at in John 14. When Jesus leaves, he says, hey, I'm not abandoning you. You're not going to be orphans. You're going to feel like you're orphans, but I'm actually going to be with you. I'm sending my Holy Spirit to be with you. He even says it's an advantage later on in that section of John. It's an advantage. It's it's better for you that I go and sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but I send the Holy Spirit to be with you. And we don't fully understand that because we'd rather see Jesus face to face. We want to be with Jesus. We're like, Jesus, I just wish I could see you. He says, no, I'm sending my spirit, and you will know me as you hear my word, as you hear the good news of what I've done for you and who I am, and you receive that by faith, you'll know that I'm with you. We can be comforted. The Holy Spirit reminds us. In the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians, it says that the Holy Spirit allows our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father, to know the God of the bear hug who is with us, who is close to us, who is squeezing us tight. One of the ways that we practice that knowledge as believers is we extend that closeness to other people. In the New Testament, it's sometimes called hospitality. Sometimes in a very nitty-gritty way, it's described as greeting others with a holy kiss. We prefer the holy handshake or hug or high five, but Christians are commanded to show affection. We're commanded to embrace, to show the closeness of God. And I would argue the more you know the closeness of God by the Holy Spirit, the more you will be the kind of person that shows closeness to others. And this doesn't mean a certain kind of personality, right? The extrovert might be close to a thousand people, but not really that close. The introvert might be really, really, really close to a few. Either way, there's closeness. We show the closeness, the warmth, the embrace of God. 
because he has come close to us. And Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, I want to encourage you with two things. Recognize the bigness of God, that he's the only one that can solve your biggest problem. As we reflect on him at Christmas time, the biggest problem we have is sin. And Jesus is the solution. Embrace him by faith. And then recognize the second problem that he solves, our aloneness. Recognize the closeness of God revealed through Jesus and extend that closeness to others. Embrace others. Show compassion. Show love in the name of Christ. One of my favorite prophecies is in Isaiah 40, and it gives this picture of the bigness and closeness of God. It gives a prophecy of what Jesus will be like. Isaiah repeatedly gives us prophecies that we sing and we quote at Christmas time. Isaiah 40 is quoted a little less often. It's talking about the good news, the gospel of who God is, and getting to see that God. And in Isaiah 49, 10, and 11, it says, Behold your God. Look, look, here he is. This, this is God. This Lord, this God comes with might. He's powerful. He's big. He's huge. His arm rules for him. It's describing the strength and the bigness of this God that we have. And then he says something funny. He says his reward is with him. His payment is with him. What's his payment? His payment is you. His reward is you. It says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the little lambs in his arms. He will hold them tight to his chest. That's the picture that God gives us in Isaiah 40 that's fulfilled in Jesus. The bigness and the closeness of God. Behold, he comes with might. He's powerful. And behold, his delight, his reward is, is you and me, his, his lambs that he holds close. That's the picture we get of God through this baby that came for us in a manger 2,000 years ago. Let me pray for us, and then we'll finish up our time together. God, thank you that you love us. I pray, Lord, that you would help that love to make a difference in our lives. Help us to serve others, to care for others. Lord, give us strength to be faithful, to be just, and to be wise. But also, Lord, allow us to be humble. Just as Joseph was humbled, he recognized that his justness and his compassion was not enough. He needed a message from the outside. I pray that you would speak to us, continue to speak to us, Help us to hear you as you call to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.